ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guest. He's Michael Jurgens. I'm Rich Shane. This is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. Michael, you are the world's leading wine influencer or the world's wine leading influencer. You are the go-to guy. I'm excited to talk to you. I can't wait to learn more about wine and all that you do. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Rich. Let's have an adventure with fermented stuff. Oh my God. We're going to, we're going to have an adventure. You are the guy that when, when you walk into a room, the, the beaming light, people know you're there, don't they? (laughs) I mean, with all due humility. Yeah. I tend to take up a lot of space. The world's leading wine influencer. How did all that get started for you? How did you grow to love and enjoy and now become an influencer of wine? Well, so I guess, um, you know, if, if you want the, to, the, the first ever moment, um, and actually, let me, let me step back. I actually believe that we are neurologically, as humans, we're neurologically wired to respond to certain things. And this is a, a function of 50,000 years of tribal living where we had to survive and thrive. And so there are certain things like running is one of them. You know, we, we throw a stick in an animal and then run after it for three days and then we could eat. And now people do marathons for fun, right? So there's, there's certain things that we're pre-wired to do. And what you need to do is somehow flip that switch on in your brain. I believe that wine is one of because we've been making wine for thousands and thousands of years. And that was how we purified our water. That's how we commune. That's I'm sure that's how we got drunk and had fun, you know, back when the saber tooth lions were fucking sneaking up on us and shit. And so it, it, it certainly took the edge off, didn't it? <laughs> and, and, certainly, yeah. and, uh, and so I, I believe that, that we're sort of wired for it. And you can talk to, to people who are super into wine and they can usually point to this moment is when it flipped on for me. And I'll tell you that moment for me. So my dad, I was like maybe 22 years old and growing up in Southern California, punk rock, skateboard kid, you know, the, the crowd I ran with was not a wine crowd. <laughs> they were a hard partying, hard charging, fighting, drinking, you know, crowd. And so my dad had gone to Italy on a business trip and he had met some locals when he was there and made friends with them. And, and they gave him a bottle of wine as a gift to take home. And so he comes home with this bottle of wine. He doesn't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Um, I can remember this vividly. It was a 1975 Gatinar, and it was wrapped up in this plastic that was so old that it had turned yellow. And my dad goes, Mike, you want to drink this wine with me? And I go, no, I don't drink wine. Wine's for sissies. And he's like, come on, just do it. And I'm like, all right, it's alcohol. We'll do it. And so uh, 
He goes, I think we should smoke cigars because <laughs> cigars go well with wine, I guess. Your, your dad really had this whole idea and vision in his mind on the plane ride back, didn't he? I guess. Yeah, I thought we were going to do this. This was a father son. and son moment. Yeah. Uh, and so my mom goes, well, go, if you're going to smoke cigars, go in the garage. And so we went in the garage and the garage is, as garages are, it's full of shit. Um, so the only space was by the washing machine. We set up these, these folding chairs. I remember all of this. This is 30 years ago. I can, I can recount every detail. And, um, the washing machine was going and it was going clunk, 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 clunk. And we light up cigars and we figure out how to open this bot, this old bottle of wine. And we poured it into these red plastic cups. And I remember taking the first sip of it and the switch flipped. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. And I, I didn't understand it. But I understood why it, people cared about it, if that makes sense. And so after that, that moment, you know, we drank the wine and it was great. And we smoked the cigars by the washing machine, chug, 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 chug. And, uh, and after that, I was like, okay, I'm interested. I'm curious about wine. And so, you know, my friends to this day, <laughs> I'm still friends with a lot of those guys and they're not wine people at all. Um, and, uh, and so I was sort of, you know, gradually introduce wine or I'd go buy a bottle of wine. I didn't know anything, but I'd just go pick one and, and, and drink it. And, and so that sort of led to this journey, you know, that I've been on now for, you know, 30 years. I imagine or wonder what it would have been like if that really wasn't a good bottle of wine and what different trajectory your life may have taken. You could be back doing the punk rock skateboarding thing and never have been introduced to the wine world. Entirely possible. Um, that being said, I would I would say that I think my brain was waiting, waiting for that moment. And so it probably would have happened at some point, uh, particularly as I got into the corporate world. And, you know, you're going to corporate dinners and stuff and you're introduced to, to lots and lots of wine situations. At some point, I have just got to imagine that that switch would have flipped on. But, it, you know, who knows when? Right. Would I have been 25 or 30 or 35? Who knows? Yeah. When the student is ready, the mentor will appear. Right. So that that was that. Hey, if you didn't get the first hint, I'm going to bring you another bottle or some other wine for you to try. From that point, like you said, you, you bought some bottles. What was the journey like? And I think I asked this because we're in 2022 and I still think that people are intimidated by wine. People are intimidated by wineries and they see the vast array of labels and bottles and shapes and sizes and colors, and they don't know where to start other than what maybe somebody in their life, they have a bottle at a dinner or somebody recommends it a tasting. What, what's that journey like in a way for you at 22, where you're trying to find your way? How did you know which wines to pick or what was your thought process there? I think um, one of the, secrets to my success in generally in life is that I am absolutely comfortable failing, enthusiastically failing over and over and over and over again. And, you know, you, you think about like, just trying to learn a skateboard trick, you know, you fall down and you hurt yourself a hundred times before you get it right or, or whatever it happens to be. And I, uh, and I've done that with business and personal stuff and whatever. I am totally fine with failure. And I think that one of the things about wine is people are worried about, you know, I'm betting my 10 bucks or my 50 bucks, or my hundred bucks. And then I get a bottle of wine that I don't like. I fail or worse. Everybody makes fun of me because I bought the Chardonnay instead of the Cabernet. And, and so, Oh my God, like, I don't want to be judged. 
I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. So I would literally like, especially when I was 23, I remember one time I went to, uh, I was probably 23 years old and I was going over to a girl's house to meet her, to go in the jacuzzi. Um, and so it was one of those kind of situations. And I was like, I'm bringing wine. And I, I remember just vividly, I walked into the liquor store, Rolf's liquor store in Irvine, California on Michelson and Culver. Uh, I walked into there and I, <laughs> I had $5. <laughs> so I go, I'm buying a five. I'm like, I don't know what I'm getting, but it's not going to be more than five bucks. And so uh, I walked up and down the aisles and I found a few different options for five bucks. Uh, and one of them had the fanciest label. <laughs> I was so, like, so, so the label sold you, right? The label sold me, but not, not because it was pretty, but it looked, it was French. I couldn't remember what the wine was, but it was French and it looked fancy on the label. And I'm like, okay, this will, well, we'll try this. Turned out it was a white wine, which um, I hadn't drank a lot of white wines before that, but we, we drank it in the jacuzzi and it was, it was great. So, um, you know, I think for a while I, I, I kind of fumbled around doing that sort of stuff and it was more like a budget label decision. Um, and then I, when I came out of grad school, I started working for, um, a big four accounting firm and, uh, and that obviously then thrusts you into a different set of opportunities, um, at business dinners and expense accounts and entertaining clients and all that sort of thing where, where people expect that you to know that Silver Oak is a good wine in a steakhouse or Canis or whatever it happens to be. And so then I went down that path for quite a bit. Um, like it was all about big reds, steakhouse grades, big reds, steakhouse grades. You know, you're at a business dinner, you order a bottle of Silver Oak, everyone's going to be happy. Um, and so I did that for maybe another probably 10 years, um, but in a very sort of like, hey, I want to try stuff. I want to like, but let's let's do this. And then I decided to get serious uh, and started studying. Is that where the whole certified specialist of wine comes in and you're a certified sommelier and all those things? I mean, was that just a, a desire to achieve the certification or was it, hey, this is all the education and the experience I'm going to get to, ha to, to so have to get there? Yeah, here's what happened. I, I actually had been I had been trying to get a little bit more deliberate about understanding wine at a higher level for a while. Um, and so I was really kind of getting myself out of the comfort zone and trying different stuff, but, and reading the odd book or two, but not in a structured manner at all. And then my girlfriend and I watched the movie song, the documentary song, the first one. And I watched these guys and I saw their level of passion and their level of understanding about how this fucking river influences the grapes on this hill and I can taste it in the glass. And I, I was mesmerized. And so at the end of the movie, I turned to my girlfriend. We were watching it on the couch. And I go, I'm doing that. And I don't know. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, in the movie, like the girlfriends all talk about like what a nightmare it is to have a, a significant other that's doing this. And I go, I'm doing that. She goes, no, you're not doing that. And I go, fucking I right. I am. And so the next day I signed up for the next level one sommelier exam, which was about 30 days out. And I said, okay, I got 30 days to learn how to be a song. And I bought every book I could find and I bought a bunch of wine and I spent every spare minute for the next 30 days studying like crazy. I'm curious, Michael, that do you think that it's your palate 
is more attuned and you have, I almost want to say special powers, or do you think you've educated your palate or do you think it's a little of both? It's a hundred percent, a little of both. I think some people are very natural tasters. My girlfriend is actually a much better taster than I, um, in terms of being able to pick out specific aromas and flavors. Um, I have trained my palate to be able to do that. But more importantly, I, I did the research to understand what it means. And so, like, I'll give you an example. You're in a glass and you're smelling sour cherry and herbal notes with high acidity. Okay, what does that mean? Well, for me, it means, and everyone's palate is a little bit different. Everyone identifies different molecules as different sorts of things. But for me, that's going to be like, okay, cool. We're in northern Italy and it's Sangiovese or Nebbiolo. All right. Number two. Okay. How do I differentiate the two? Okay. Now level two would be, how are the tannins? Are the tannins more fine grained or are they more coarse? If it's more coarse, probably Sangiovese. More fine grained, probably Nebbiolo. And that's kind of how I piecemeal out. My girlfriend, on the other hand, is going, I get a lot of sour cherry and herbal notes, but she's not, she doesn't, she, she hasn't done the level of work that I've done to, to say like, what does that mean? And how do you get how do you get more and more specific? Okay, it's coarse grain, so it's Sangiovese. Is it heavy use of French oak? Then it's Brunella. Is it um, no oak? Then it's probably Chianti. But it's got some complexity, so it's probably Chianti Classica. You know, I'm, I'm taking it down the Holy next seven miles. So, so, like, I'm, I'm fascinated and intimidated all in the same vein because the ability to do that, I think you really have to educate. And there are, and I'm sure you're one of them, there are people that can stop and say, and, you know, this is the year. I mean, you can pull that out of, drink. you can say, this is where it came from. This is the year. You know all that. That's just, it's like, I almost want to say, you know, how do I start to learn some of that knowledge and in that information? Is that, is that, I mean, you have, you have your drinking and knowing things, knowing things, wine blog and book. Is that really where you stopped and said, Hey, how can I educate and how can I teach the world about what I know and give them that experience and, you know, take them on the journey that I'm, that I'm on. Well, let me break it down into two different uh, buckets. So, so the first bucket would be, um, in, in terms of trying to go down the same path I would go down, the question is, is why would you want to? <laughs> you know, you, you got to have like some sort of driving force that says, I need to spend literally years and years and years of my life trying to differentiate between Chianti and Chianti Classico. And does it really matter for the average Joe? It, it probably doesn't. Um, all that being said, I do think there's this the, the vast majority of the wine drinking population is curious. Like if, if, if you like wine, you're probably sitting there saying to yourself, how do I have the most enjoyable wine experience at the lowest possible cost? You know? And so for years, my friends had been after me to give them wine recommendations. Like, Oh, you're a wine guy. Mike. like, you know, all the good wines, like tell me wines. And I'm like, dude, I What's your budget? Do you like whites or reds? Do you like sparkling? What are you going to be doing with it? Is it you're going to drink it with a steak? You're going to have it on the patio by the pool with your friend? Like, there's no, there's no way to for me to do this, and and I don't, I don't want to be bothered either. <laughs> like it seems like effort. So, so I, I never did. It's like a Dear Abby column, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, seriously. And so, um, this one day I was 
on a plane and I was reading this book um, as I normally do. I'm reading wine books and a lot of them are pretty dry. I mean, this wine book and the, the author in it started like ripping on Shannon Blanc. And I think this is, I'm not, I'm maybe paraphrasing, but I'm pretty close. They, she said something to, this, to the extent of Shannon Blanc is a garbage grape. And I was like, it, on the plane, I was incensed. I'm like, fuck you. It is not. Shannon is awesome. Like, I can only imagine you yelling out in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> Elbow the guy next to me goes, you see what this bitch is saying? Shannon Blanc is great. So, so I whipped open my laptop and I'm like, I'm fixing this right now. And so I wrote an email to like 10 of my friends that basically said, hey, I don't know if you guys know about Chenna Blanc, but it's a really awesome grape. And it's made in a couple different styles. And you should go to, to your local wine store and you should look for a bottle that says Bouvray or Sauvignon, and you should buy it and you should try it and you should see what you think. And I just sent it to you. And then those 10 or so people all responded and said, this is awesome. Can we do another one? And so I'm like, okay, you know what else I think is cool? Nebbiolo is cool. You should drink some Nebbiolo. Here's why I think it's cool. And then those people like forwarded that email to their friends and those friends forwarded it. And then I started getting emails from all over the place saying, hey, are you, are, can, can you send me an email about some stuff? And so I started like adding emails together. Um, and, uh, and I, whenever I got around to it, maybe once a week, I'd think about, oh, you know, I'm drinking a menthea right now. This menthea is super delicious. I should tell everybody. Hey guys, menthea is delicious. It's from Spain. It's fruity. It's got a little bit of spice. If you like Pinot, you probably will like this. Here's a bottle I recommend. And so I went on doing that for, I don't know, probably about a year. And I was getting emails from all over the world. Like this like went everywhere. And, um, and so finally it just got too big to manage out of my inbox. So I set up a website and just said, look, if you want to, if you want to, Get on this bandwagon. Just go to drinkingandknowingthings.com, put in your email, and you'll just start getting them from the beginning. And, and so that took the, the logistical burden off of me. But then people would like email me and they'd be like, hey, I'm late to the party. Can you send me the, I, I'm only, I, I started on number 42. Can you send me the back 41 issues? And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm not the fucking librarian. I'm sorry. That Can you also come and detail my car? <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. And don't mind dry cleaning while you're on the way. And yeah. By the way, if you got any extra Girl Scout cookies, can you bring those over? And I was like, fuck you. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for my friends. Um, but I got so many requests that I ended up going, all right. So I batched up the first 52 um, and released it as a book on Amazon with the idea that Hey, if you're curious about wine, but you kind of don't know where to start, here's a real low risk way to do it. Once a week, read for five minutes. You're probably going to laugh because I talk an enormous amount of shit in the book. Uh, it's not super esoterically geeky. It's not inaccessible for people. And there's no risk. It's sort of like, hey, try the Shannon. Do you like it? If so, cool. Now you know. If you don't, that's cool too. The next one's Nebbiolo. Next week, try that. And what I found is, and I put it out there, and, and it became a bestseller, which was amazing. But I get today, I get these emails from from people all around the world, um, where uh, you know they're saying like they'll send me a picture of a of a wine list in a restaurant, and they'll be like, "I'm doing it. They have a Sirtico. I know what that is." And I'm like, "That's awesome!" Like, how wow, great. wow. 
Actually, I'll tell you another funny story back about the, the Psalm documentary. If you remember in Psalm, one of the guys' names was was Ian. One of the I, four I guys. feel like it's been, I can't remember like how long ago I watched it. And, and I always confuse it. And I don't know why with Bottle Shock. Ah. I don't know why. I just, every time I think of that one, I think Bottle Shock. I don't know why. But go ahead. Tell your, tell your story. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the four guys that was in the, in the, um, the movie um, his name was Ian. And so I was at the pro wine convention in Germany back in May and I'm sitting there and it was interestingly enough at a Menthea booth and I'm tasting through the Menthea and I look and fucking Ian Cobble's right next to me. So I start fanboying and I don't, I don't, I live in Southern California. We see celebrities all the time. Like I have a ton that live in my neighborhood. Um, so I'm not a fanboy guy, but I'm like, Oh my God, it's Ian. <laughs> so I, so I grab him. I'm like, Oh my God, you're Ian Cobble. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, the big fan, blah, 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 blah. I buy your shit from Psalm Select. And uh, while I'm talking to him, some dude from Switzerland comes up to me and goes, hey, you're the drinking and knowing things guy. Oh, wow. Can I get a photo? And so I'm like, sure, I'm going to selfie with the dude. And, I, and I'm sitting there going like, I'm fanboying him. And this guy's fanboying me. Uh, it was just a really bizarre experience. And, I, and my girlfriend was standing right next to me watching me. And she's like, did that just happen? <laughs> I go, apparently it did. That's awesome. So, I mean, but but that's exciting. And and what the, what I take out of all this, Michael, is that you live life with exuberance. I mean, like we said, you know, you wake up and you can't wait to just just enjoy and take on and and have this awesome day. And what better way to express that in a lot of ways is we talked about. Hey, grab a bottle of wine. You share it with friends. You're doing that on a global scale now. You're giving yeah. your opinions and ideas and thoughts. I'm wondering. You know, it sounds like you're sending out recommendations or ideas for people to enjoy wine. Are there parts of this where you stop and say, don't drink this wine or totally. don't drink this wine now? Yep. A hundred percent. I say that. <laughs> like one of the things I rail on a lot is um, these winemakers that are trying to turn the, the volume up to 11 on everything. So we want the most fruit possible. We want the most oak possible. We want the most... Um, uh, alcohol possible. We want the most tannins possible. And so uh, the idea that if, if, you know, uh, a nine on all of those is good, then a 10 is better. And it's not necessarily, it can be, but it's usually not. And so, but that style has become a favorite, particularly here in the U S and it just drives me fucking crazy that like, dude, it's, it's like salt on food, a little bit of salt, really helps the dish, but a bunch of salt makes it not as good. A little bit of oak really helps a wine. A ton of oak doesn't necessarily. I'm curious. Or, or it might it might help it 20 years from now, but then we drink it today right. and it's and it's shitty. But then people associate, oh, oak is good. So I like I rail on stuff like that all the time. I'm curious, um, you know, the in the bourbon world we're doing different finishes, Chardonnay, we're doing uh, ports, we're doing sherry finishes, starting to see wines do wines in ex-bourbon barrels, right? What's your opinion of that? And is it just taking it on a case-by-case basis? Because when you say, hey, you know, you're, you're turning it from a nine, which is really enjoyable, to a level 10 or 11, and you feel like you need to do this because you're missing out on the marketing party or what people perceive as what they should be doing with their wine. What are your thoughts about that? So I've tried a few of those. I don't, I have not personally liked any of them. I think 
So you think about like, what does oak bring to wine? So the first thing that oak brings is if it's a new barrel, it's going to impart some oak flavors, um, you know, coconut and, and maybe vanilla and some baking spices um, in that first year, a little bit less the second year and the third year, you know, it starts to tail off. So if you want a wine that's super vanilla-y, you know, okay, you, you put it in that a brand new barrel. The second thing it does is it allows for kind of very mild oxi oxidation. And so it allows the wine to mellow a little bit. And then the third thing it does is it transfers tannins, oak tannins to the wine. Um, and so then you end up in the wine, you end up with grape tannins, oak tannins, and then sometimes they bump together and they perform, they make hybrid chains of oak and grape tannins. So the wine becomes more tannic. Um, I don't know that, that, putting aging wine in a, in a barrel that has had bourbon in it for five years helps with any of those. It certainly doesn't help with the uh, issue number one, because you're using a used barrel. Um, the flavors it might impart are more bourbon, you know, and I don't like, I would never make a, here, I, you want a right, nice refreshing glass of Maker's Mark and Cabernet? Like, like it sounds disgusting. Um, so I think it's a marketing thing. Um, but people are selling it and uh, morons are buying it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. Uh, I am. I, I, who knows? I, I try to keep a really open mind about wine because I, I, I've learned throughout the years that I, I make these conclusions about things. And then I later try something that contradicts everything that I was thinking. I'm like, ah, fuck, I was wrong. Shit. All right. But that's so, along the lines of you saying, hey, look, you don't you don't have a problem with failing. You don't, don't have, have a problem with being wrong. You don't have a because like you said, somebody, you know, is being they're invited to a dinner. Right. And they know, hey, bring wine. Yeah. And it's so unless everybody they know what everybody else is going to drink and like and they show up with some sort something that, hey, this is a name. This is a brand. I know everybody's going to like it. But there's such an intimidation factor. Nobody wants to be wrong. You don't mind being wrong, right? You I don't, don't mind going wrong. back. This is the world we live in. Nobody wants to make a mistake. You know, nobody right. wants to stumble across their words or, wow, that would have been a fabulous dinner. The company was great. The food was wonderful. But uh, Rich brought that, you know, horrible bottle of wine, you know, so he's never so, getting invited back. <laughs> do you know, do you know JCB? Do you know the JCB wines? Not familiar, no. Uh, so JCB, uh, he, he is a French guy, owns a bunch of different wineries in Napa. Um, and he has like a, a wine show that he does. And so I showed up to his wine show. And, and by the way, he owns a bunch of wineries in Burgundy too. So like he's a wine guy. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm going to bring wine. Like, what should I bring to this thing? And so I settled on bringing this really geeky, esoteric um, bottle from Northern Italy from this guy who who's picking grapes and he puts them in these watertight clay pots and he sticks them in a pool for like five months and lets them ferment with the skins underwater. And then he pulls them out and he, and he, and he bottles it. And, um, and I had bought uh, a case of this wine, um, which is kind of hard to get. Um, and I tried a bottle of it and I thought it was great. And so anyway, so I show up <laughs> we're on camera, we're doing it and he goes, what'd you think? And I go, I brought this wine. I explained it to him. We open it up. And it had fermented again in the bottom. It was oh, fucking no. terrible. And like we both sat there like, ah, well, we missed the boat on that one. And let's try this one. And he just grabbed another one and we just kept going. 
Um, and that's the way I think it, it should be. You know, you got two guys who are uber, uber geeky about wine. We took a we took a gamble on this. We came up short. You know, that's okay. Live to drink another day. Yeah. And I and I think that's the whole the whole thing, the whole way that people should approach wine is hey, dude, what's the worst that could happen? You don't like it? Okay, don't have any more. Try something different. Well, not your way of approaching wine is you not only just go out, drink bottles and enjoy bottles, you get involved and start a winery. So <laughs> Bhutan Wine Company. Now, this is a whole different dynamic. This is exciting. I'm fascinated to hear about the production and all that has gone into. My, I, I read a little bit that the way you discovered this area was you were doing a marathon and you were just, uh, you know, you you were you know just kind of mesmerized by the terroir, right? Yeah, that's pretty much happened. We uh, we were running these adventure races all over the world in weird parts, um, and I found myself in the Himalayas uh, running this marathon. And I didn't know anything about the country of Bhutan, nothing. Nor did I, I do any research whatsoever. <laughs> I, I literally I just got on the plane. I'm like, ah, we'll see what happens. And so we got there and um, what I didn't know then, but I learned is that Bhutan was, is the only carbon negative country on the planet. And then they have this really harmonious um, balance with the environment. It's actually written in their constitution that they can, they must have 67% of the entire country must be um, forest lands that you can't develop. it. Um, and so everything I ate there was just amazing. Like all the produce and, the meat is another story, but the uh, everything that was grown there was just spectacular. And so in my head, you know, I, I assumed, you know, every country that grows stuff grows winers and has for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I just assumed they had wine. And so everywhere we went in the country, I kept asking people where the wineries were because I wanted to visit them and I wanted to experience the Bhutanese wine. And everyone's like, you know, know what you're talking about and so we ended up at this dinner with these government officials who wanted to meet the foreigners who'd come to this little kingdom in the in the himalayas to run a marathon um and i asked one of the guys i'm like yo where's your wineries i want to visit he goes we don't have it and i go how is that possible you have this beautiful terroir you're growing these the world's best mandarin oranges you know how are you not growing wine grapes? And he basically said, oh, we, we just have never done it. They never came here. Like the Italian arm or the Roman army never marched through there. Marco Polo never went through there. Like they just, and there wasn't any natural indigenous grapes there. Yeah, so, so when you did. start to think about how history plays in where wine grapes and wine, wine production come into play, that's, that's just the fact. And you don't even think about that, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, like I just, I mean, the last you think about like big countries that that have wine industries that didn't have indigenous grapes, like Australia, you know, Busby went down there in the I think in the 1700s, you know, with the convicts, and he brought some grapes with them, and then they started growing them, and they made a wine industry. New Zealand did it in the 1800s, but like America, we always had grapes just growing wild. Sure, we brought stuff from Europe later, but you know, back in the revolutionary days they were making shit with norton and Catawba and stuff that they just found growing in the forest bhutan never had that and nobody ever went there and said 
hey, you should do this, except me. <laughs> Actually, that's not entirely true. There was a guy um, who tried to do it in the 90s who, who was not successful at doing it, but um, he had the same. Actually, I'll tell this story because this is, this is interesting. There's this guy named John Galat, and um, his family owns wineries on three different continents. They own a shit ton of wineries. They own Clodeval in Napa. They own Toltarni in Australia, and they own a bunch of stuff in France. And he had been going to Bhutan um, just because Bhutan's a magical place. And he had the same idea that I did. Like, hey, why are we not growing grapes here? And so he worked with the country and they said, well, let's try it. And uh, the project never got off. the. And, and so there's a piece of me that says, here's a billionaire global power player with wineries on three continents who tried to do this and didn't. Uh, what makes me think that I can um, but the flip side of it is, is I also that's think- fascinating, Michael, because I think this I think the opposite getting to know you. You're like, this guy couldn't. I'm going to do this. Right. Well, that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I think. And the other the other piece of this, too, is now that we're five years or more deep, actually more than that, seven years deep in seven years. I don't know. But we're years into this project and the level of um, stuff that I hadn't thought about and the level of effort that it's taken. I, if I already had vineyards and wineries in a bunch of different areas, I probably would have said, fuck it. Like, I'm not like, I don't need this extra thing because the level of headache is not commensurate with, you know, all the other things that I have. Um, but I don't have wineries on three continents. I have this cool project that I'm doing. And so I can, I can go all in on solving these challenges. But like, I'll give you an example. I have, I get daily updates from all of our vineyards. Um, on WhatsApp and we have a call once a week. So our call two weeks ago, we were running down the vineyards. I have water stress problem in one vineyard. I have a beetle problem in another vineyard. I have a, a, a bird problem in a third vineyard and I have a mildew problem in a fourth vineyard. It's four different vineyards, four different problems. Like, all right, let's solve for these one at a time. Bink, 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 you know. We're, Get the we're, birds we're, to start eating the beetles. <laughs> well, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked about that, actually. And on the birds, uh, one of my solutions was, like, there's two specific species of birds that are that are hassling this one vineyard. And I was like, what are, what's that bird's natural predator right. in Bhutan? Like, do you guys have hawks? Do you have falcons? Do you have eagles? And they're like, no, we don't have those. And I was like, can I import some? Can I import some hawks? And the answer is, Probably not. You know, it's a carbon negative country. You don't want to be, you know, bringing in invasive species. It's going to be like the mongooses in Hawaii. You know, they just go crazy because there's no predators. Um, so that was my first, you know, like, hey, how do we solve this naturally? Um, now we're now we're, we're working on nets. I would think nets, at least to keep uh, my, my inexperience, I'm, I'm picturing nets over there. Now, you said you're about seven years or so into it. Where are you in you know, the great production and all the things that you're trying to accomplish, some of the varietals you're growing there? So um, the Bhutan's an interesting country in the sense that it's in the Himalayas, but the south side of it is very low in altitude. It's only about 500 feet. Uh, the north side is about... 27,000 feet at the highest point. And that span is only like 400 miles. So in a very short space, you have every climate zone. We don't know what climate zones are going to be best for producing grapes, nor do we know what varietals will work 
there. So we, we studied it in depth. We tried to do analysis and inevitably I said, we're in analysis paralysis. We're never going to know. There's too much heterogeneity in this environment. We just got to fucking try some stuff and see what works. So we planted vineyards at all different altitudes, ranging from about maybe 2,000 feet up to about 9,000 feet. And I planted um, 14, 15 different varieties, um, eight which are red, five which are white, and two which are hybrids. Um, and we planted all of them at all different locations. And we spent the last five years kind of figuring out uh, what's doing well and what's not. And we are, we are learning. Like, here's one of the things that we're learning. Chardonnay doesn't grow in Bhutan, which is surprising to me because Chardonnay grows like weeds everywhere else in the world. I thought for sure Chardonnay would kill it there. I have not gotten any Chardonnay fruit in any of my vineyards. Merlot and Malbec are fucking killing it, particularly in the east and these lower elevation sites that are really hot uh, with Cabernet Sauvignon right behind it. So like, I'm like, cool. The Riesling in that vineyard is not doing super well, but the, but the Merlot is doing great. So um, we're trying to dial that, that in. And our, our vision is that, you know, this is a 50-year project. It's a 100-year project where, you know, the country will be continuing to sort of refine this over, you know, eternity. Um, however, the cool thing is, like, as climate change is impacting traditional wine zones here like Bordeaux um, like climate change is a factor there but if it warms up we just move up a little bit and we're, we're, we're kind of hedged against it um, we'll do our first harvest next year uh, we were thinking about maybe doing it this year but this year we got enough grapes that we were able to really sort of hone in on okay this vineyard this grape is doing really really well this trellising method or this pruning method sucks. Let's not do that again. Uh, and so I think for next year, we're going to be in a, in a position to have some really decent grapes and we'll make the first vintage. And, and like I said before, I think this is the first time this has been done in 200 years. So it's a, it's a watershed moment for the country. And it's a truly intriguing story on the global world of wine where there's a lot of people watching this thing, you know, like, okay. Well, but I, my sense is if you can get this going and people can see value, you're going to have a rush of now some of these other wine producers would want to come into the country. But what really comes about all that you're saying for me, Michael, is that you're 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 creating a legacy. You're creating yeah. something. You know, you said 50, 100 years. You and I will be here in 50, um, yeah. 100 years. That's a long shot, but we'll try to get there. And yeah. You'll see the, you know, quote unquote, fruits of your labor that what could benefit this country over time financially and economically and just, you know, agritourism. Who knows what else is going to come out of this? It, that's all really fascinating. It really is. Yeah. And you think about like like guys like Robert Mondavi did this for Napa. Right. But I don't know that Robert Mondavi ever said to himself, you know what, I'm going to create a legacy. What he said is, is like. I think this place can make world-class wines. Let's show the rest of the world we can do this. And then it developed into a legacy. And that that's kind of like, I never set out to do this. I just thought the country should do it because I thought it would be cool. And then as we went along with it, um, they finally said, hey, will you do it with us? And I was like, 
oh yeah, well, this is an awesome adventure. But it, for me, it was more, it was less driven by the, the desire to create a legacy and it was more driven by the desire of passion. Like, I think this is fucking cool as hell. Let's see what we can do. And if it develops into a legacy, all the better. But that wasn't my intent going into it. Where did you source your plantings from? So the first... <laughs> See, I knew there was something there. <laughs> okay. So first off, you need to understand, right? So there's no there's no grapevines in the country. So I have to source cuttings. So I start emailing nurseries. And I'm like, hey, I'd like to buy some plants, some cuttings, you know, some vines. They go, awesome. Where's your vineyard? And I would say, it's in the kingdom of Bhutan in the Himalayas. And then that was the last I would hear back from. And I think that people thought I was doing like a Nigerian prince, like email scam. Like I need to do this. Send me, send me a thousand dollars and all I need is 800 and I'll send you back the change. It's okay. You're safe. We're going to need your your bank account number so I can send you this, uh, this wire transfer. And, and so Finally, I got in my car and I drove up to Bakersfield and I went to Sunridge Nurseries and I walked in and I sat down with them and I said, this is who I am. I'm right here. I'm a legit person. This is my vision. This is what we're trying to do. I need somebody to help me. And and one of the dudes there goes, ah, this sounds cool. I'll help. And so I got the first round from them. And then the second round, we went to Mercier in France. Um, and, uh, and it was a little bit easier in the second round because by then there had been some global press, uh, there's been a lot of press about this project. Um, and so I could send him like links to the press to say, Hey, here's what we're doing. I need to, I wanted some Tempranillo. I wanted some Sangiovese. I wanted some Riesling. I wanted some Shannon. And, uh, and so that worked. And then the third round that we sourced was hybrids. Cause I wanted to try some hybrids. There's some rain pressure over there. So I thought maybe we'll screw around with some hybrids. Uh, I'm, I'm less excited about the wine coming from hybrids, but you could do interesting stuff like make sparkle. Um, and so I kind of went through the same kind of process of trying to get some hybrid nurseries to pay attention to me. And, and, uh, and finally I got somebody to pay attention and, and got those over there. What we did after that is we built nurseries there. And so we're, we're kind of self-propagating vines in the country now. And I'm, we may go back and import some more species or some more varietals if we decide, I don't know, I'm making this up, but let's say we decide that uh, we really want to try Menthea um, for whatever reason or, or Norella Moscalese or Pinot Gris or something. Great. We'll, we'll source more, but We've got enough different stuff there already. Uh, and some of them, like I said, are really flourishing. And I'm okay with failure. Like, I, I think of all of our vineyards, I think a couple of our vineyards are not going to work out. I think they're going to be too high in elevation. And I know for certainty that not every varietal is going to work everywhere, um, which is fine. I just need to figure out, hey, the Riesling grows great here. The Cab grows great here. We're going to make a Cab. We're going to make a Riesling. We're going to get rid of the Tempranillo and the Shen. Yeah, and then you just expect like you, you've already reached that point where you can now, as you said, you set up a nursery, but you can start to experiment on your own. I, I, I almost wish there was a documentary where people were following you around with a camera, especially having to go up to this nursery or listen to people hang up on you on the phone or stuff like that. That would have been totally entertaining. <laughs> there, There is a documentary film crew that's coming to film the first harvest. Okay, uh, And there was a guy who started with us. 
um, early on and then kind of disappeared, just sort of ghosted us. But there definitely will be a documentary. I, I don't know that it's going to, I don't, I don't have any footage of me calling them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do, we'll have to get uh, an actor to recreate the actual, you know, the actual events that happened. We'll, yeah, we'll, so we'll weave that in, right? <laughs> that'll be funny as hell. Yeah. There's a, and, and what I really want to do is I really want to like, uh, I, I'm not a filmmaker, but I, in my head, I, I envision the movie starts and here I am playing with my punk rock band in a garage somewhere. And it, that's how it starts. And then it fades from there to the beautiful vistas of the vineyards in Bhutan. And everyone goes, what the fuck is going on here? And, and, uh, and then they go on the journey with us, but we'll, we'll see. Now um, we're going to take almost a 180. I, I you know, we're going to turn the other corner and SoCal rum company. Yeah. I mean, people think, oh, Michael, he's just a wine guy. And by the way, it's Michael Jurgens and it's Michael Annan. Yeah, so Eamon is my middle name. Um, and so when I when I wrote my very first book, which was years ago, and for some reason in my head, I was like, you got to have a pen name. You got to have a nom de plume. You know, you got to be. The... And so I was like, I'll do it with my middle name, Michael Eamon. Um, And then and this was just you know, my first book, like I, I didn't really think it through. And so then when I wrote the sequel of that book, I'm like, Oh, Michael Amen. And, and then now, you know, nine books later, whatever, uh, I'm sort of locked in. And so it's now it's become a problem where people are like, well, is it Jerkins? Is it Amen? What the hell is going on? But, but that's how it started. Yeah. When I looked it up, I'm like, is this the right guy? Do I have the right program? Did I type it in? You know, did I yeah. Google this? Right. Yeah. All right. So Michael Amen. And Michael Jurgens, you're both the same, not split personalities, nope. but you've gone the wine route and then you kind of turned right or turned left, whichever way you went. Rum. Talk about SoCal rum. Well, interestingly enough, this has a tie to Bhutan. <laughs> um, so one of my best friends is a rum fanatic, just fishing out of it's all he drinks is rum. And my son also happens to be a rum aficionado, although not nearly at the level of my buddy who's been doing it much longer. And the three of us were in Bhutan um, and we were sitting on this patio. Um, they were drinking rum and I was drinking wine and we're looking out over these beautiful valleys and like just basking in the serenity and, and cool energy that's Bhutan and having a time. And, uh, and Glenn looks at me and he goes, we should start a distillery. <laughs> and, I go, <laughs> and I go, making what? And he goes, making rum. And my son goes, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so I was like, well, what do you envision? And he goes, I'm envisioning, you know, we have a tasting room in like downtown Newport Beach and we make, make a little bit of rum and people can come in. And, and I'm like, okay, who's going to run the distillery? Who's going to clean the toilets? Who's going to be there at 10 o'clock in the morning to open it and stay till midnight? Like, who, how much is it going to cost to buy a bunch of tanks? Like I'm, I'm all on board with like making a rum, but let's think about the business model. And so I, I said to Glenn, I go, Hey, look, how many bourbons can you name? And he goes, a bunch. And I go, how many tequilas can you name? And he goes, a bunch. And I go, how many vodkas? A bunch. And how, how many spiced rums can you name? And he goes, a bunch. Captain Morgan, Myers, Kraken, you know, he's in off. And I go, how many silver rums? can you name that are premium other than Bacardi? And he looks at me, goes, oh shit, none. And I go, why don't we try to develop a, a super premium 
silver rum that people could use as the base for cocktails. Not a spice one, not a flavored rum, just a really high-end, high-quality um, silver rum. And he goes, huh. So we dicked around with the recipe for like four years, and we finally settled on something that we thought was awesome. And we made our first batch, and we outsourced the production. We didn't buy a distillery and the tanks and everything, the still. Um, we outsourced it. We just took our recipe to somebody and said, can you make this rum? He said, sure. So we made it and we tasted it. We're like, this is really, really good. We're like, we should see what the experts think. And so we we entered it in the the San Francisco Spirit Awards, which is the largest competition in the world. Yeah, if you're, if you're going to, you see your whole attitude in life is go big or go home, right? Yeah. 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 Grip it or rip it. Let's, you know, let's go. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see what they say. Also, no fear of failure, right? Like if they hate it, eh, whatever. We get a bronze, cool, uh, and we they gave us a gold, a gold medal. So we're like, holy shit, wow, maybe we're onto something here. So we submitted it to the SIP Awards, which is the largest consumer-rated award show, and they gave us a double gold. So we said, holy shit, like, this is legit. And so we submitted it to the Ratings Institute, and they gave us a 95-point rating, the highest rating of a silver rum ever. And I think it's the second highest rated rum ever as well. The first highest rate of rum got 97 and it was a, a 23 year aged rum and ours is a silver rum. Uh, and so we're like, wow, this is, we got something here. Let's go uh, sell it. And so we, you know, took it to the marketplace and it, it's, we have a, we're primarily in Southern California, but we're starting to branch out. Um, and it, we have just like fanatic followers uh, of it. Um, like people are like, this is the only rum I drink. This is, and it's, it's been cool. It's been a fun ride. We, uh, somehow we got hooked into like the Hollywood crowd and we ended up doing private parties in a bunch of like high end celebrities house. We were on like a couple episodes of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh no. Wow. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It's been a cool. It's fun it's when a, you see your, when you see product placement just show up like that, isn't it? But yeah. And the thing about it is, is like, you can pay for product placement. We didn't, nah, we didn't pay for it. They asked us. Up. Yeah, they're like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna film this party. Can you guys come and make rum cocktails for everybody? We're like, oh, yeah, we can. That sounds great. Is there are, is there distribution? Can people? You said it's mostly in Southern California, but are you shipping? Do you know that they're shipping? Yeah, products? yeah. There's a there's a handful of. I mean, we can't right because we're the producers, but there's a right. handful of retailers who ship um, nationally. There are certain states that they can't ship to because of the rules. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, if people want to try it, they can go to SoCalRum.com um, and there's links to some suppliers or they can Google it. Um, it's And it's cheap. It's 20 bucks. You know, so 20 bucks for a 95 point spirit. See, is, here's what's going to happen. It's 20 bucks today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. Like people have told us that we need to bump our pricing up, um, but we have the a real core part of our business are the bar, the beach bars in like Newport Beach and Costa Mesa, um, where it's sort of their standard rum that they put in everything that they make. It's not the well, but it's like for their premium drinks, you get SoCal rum. Um, so if we bump the the pricing on it, it kind of screws our core customer base that got us to where we are today. So, and, and I'm, I'm looking at like, you know, Tito's. Tito's is a great vodka, it's 20 bucks. You know, maybe we're just the Tito's of Rome. That should be on a T-shirt. I mean, and you love T-shirts, so that might be your <laughs> that might be your next T-shirt. I do love. We got to see you at. Uh, I would love to see SoCal Rum 
at uh, Bar Convent Brooklyn in 2023. And that's an industry show where you get those that are in you know the bar world and mixologists and bartenders and stuff like that. So uh, I think they would go crazy uh, trying this premium rum and learning what to do with it on the East Coast too. Um, especially you said uh, you're in Manhattan quite a bit. So uh, they would love to see SoCal rum there. Yeah, we've actually talked to, we're, we're in discussions with a couple of East Coast distributors literally as we speak. Cool. Um, so it would be cool. You know, it's one of those things where we never set out to, to you know, build a global rum business. It was always like this fun little thing that we did just because we thought it would be cool. Isn't uh, that how it works though? I mean, that's kind of how it works. Let, let's just make some rum, you know, we could yeah. do that. So talking about fun little things just to do, stage two candidate um, as far as a master of wine and where are you along in the process and, and how close does that become the success of what you're setting out to do? So there's, yeah, there's, there's two major industry certifications. There's master Somali and then there's master of wine. Um, there's about 400 of each in the world. Um, I think the master sommelier certificate, and both are sort of the highest thing that you can get in the wine world. Um, sommelier is primarily designed for people who are like serving in restaurants, um, which is not what I do, nor do I want to do it. Um, master of wine is more like understanding the business of wine and winemaking and, and grape growing and so on and so forth. So there's about 60 masters of wine in the U.S. I have been working towards that certification for about eight years. Um, I passed the first stage, no problem. The second stage has two pieces. I passed one of the pieces, no problem. And then I failed the tasting piece four years in a row. Um, I just took it for the fifth time about two weeks ago, and I get my results October 24th. October 24th. Okay. So we will see. I mean, it's, it's the test itself has like an 8% pass rate. So it's, you know, you're, you got to be prepared to be disappointed a lot when you're, when you're, when you're taking that exam. But uh, um, I felt decent about this year's approach. If I make it awesome. Um, it's one of those things though that it, it if I, if I make it or if I don't make it, it kind of doesn't impact my life at all. Like it doesn't change my business. It doesn't change my credibility. It doesn't, uh, it's just that, uh, you know, some arbitrary organization decides that I have mastery. Um, there's many, many people in the wine world that don't have any certifications that are super, super well-respected. And there's people who have certifications who are not respected at all. Um, but it's something that I've spent an enormous amount of effort pursuing um just because of my own passion uh and it's it's provided me a kind of a structured way of thinking and learning about wine and had i not done that i wouldn't have gone all over the world to study wine in all these different regions and if i hadn't gone all over the world to study wine when i got to bhutan i wouldn't have looked at it and said this looks like a wine place you know so it's already taken me to these really neat places in my life um i'd love to have the the initials but We'll see. So if people want to see the celebratory post on Instagram, who are they looking for? Drinking and knowing. Drinking and knowing. Okay. So on October 24th, we're going to see this huge blow up of, uh, you know, people congratulating you on that next stage, of course, right? Uh, from your lips to God's ears, my friend. And uh, if not, and if not, 
It'll be the next year. That's okay. Well, so here's what happens. You only get five chances. Oh, mm. oh, wow. So, um, but if I fail again, the, the Institute allows you to sort of sit out a year and then reapply. And I definitely know a handful of, of MWs who have done that. They timed out. I mean, you think about it, 8% pass rate, you get five chances. In net net, there's a 40% overall right. chance that you'll you'll make it, um, which is not good on. Um, so I may or I may not de- elect to, to, to go back in. Uh, pro- just knowing myself, I probably will. <laughs> but, but we'll see what's going on with my if, – if I fail this year, um, we'll roll it forward – you know, a year and see what's going on in my life at that time. And I'll probably go back in. <laughs> All that you do, I mean, are there, are there things where we're halfway through almost 2022 and maybe looking forward to next year, are there things you're still looking to accomplish or would like to see uh, in your wine knowledge, wine experience, places you haven't gone, places you would go back to some things you, you just want to do? Oh God. Yeah. So one of the things I've been working on is the, um, this thing called the Grand Slam, where you run a marathon on every continent, and then you also run a marathon on the sea ice at the North Pole. Um, and so I've, I've done most of the continents. I need to get to Africa, and I need to get to um, South America. Um, and we, my, the two guys that I've been doing this with, we're, we want, we're saving the North Pole till last. But as climate change occurs, the sea ice is getting weaker and weaker there. And so last year when they did it, um, the group that went to do it got stuck in ice. I think it was Iceland or maybe Norway for like three weeks because the ice was too unstable for them to go and land a helicopter on. Um, so I, I got to get that shit done before the, before the, sea <laughs> before ice, the ice caps melt and we, we all drowned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that's on my list. There's definitely wine places. I, I have not, I've been to many, many wine regions. I haven't been to Tuscany. Uh, I've been all over Italy, but I've never been to Tuscany. I've never been to the Rhone Valley. Those are definitely on my list of places to go. There's definitely a couple of places in Australia. I still haven't been um, that I love to go to. There's places I'd love to go back to and try to learn more. You know, Burgundy is fucking unknowable. Um, and, and so you, you could spend a lifetime just in that little 30 mile stretch and there's always new stuff to learn. So um, I'd love to write a few more books. Um, you know, I wrote this trilogy of wine novels about these two protagonists that kind of like color money meets pulp fiction meets wine um, very, you know, hustle guns and, you know, gangsters and shit. And, uh, I've got an idea for a couple more books in that series. I'd like to get that done. I'd like to get the Bhutan wine company to 2000 acres of vineyards over the next seven to eight years. Um, it'd be interesting to see what happens with SoCal rum. Um, you know, my, one of my bands that I play in, we just released the first punk rock album ever to be released as an NFT. Uh, so I'm kind of, Curious to see what's going to happen with music distribution as it relates to the blockchain. Or, and uh, and I, I like to hold myself up as a mild pioneer in that space. Uh, yeah, I got I got fucking ideas. You I got, got ideas. You're like one to watch, man. You're like the uh, the the 50 fastest growing, you know, adventurous in the world. <laughs> well, so, so it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. I, I went through a pretty gnarly divorce. Years ago, I had been married for about 11 years and it took me 13 years to get divorced in the state of California. 
And through that process, I got the shit kicked out. Um, you know, trying to get access to my children, you know, spending absurd amounts of money. And through that process, I, you know, at the time I was a kind of douchebag corporate guy, you know, we, we got to make more money, have more Ferraris. And I was that guy. And um, through that process, I kind of learned like none of that shit matters that, you know, we're, you get one ride through. And so I, I eventually kind of morphed this into this mantra of do epic shit with cool people. That's what's most important. Just go, let the universe take you to where you're, you need to go. Don't fight it. Uh, when the opportunities arise along the way, go all in on them, but only do epic shit with cool people. Don't chase money. Don't chase stuff. Don't chase um, status. And if you do that, you're going to have this amazing life. And once I sort of adopted that mentality, that philosophy, like everything changed about and, and and for the vast better knows way more successful at everything that I did. So, you know, that we're getting philosophical here, but that's, that's kind of how I'm trying to approach the world right now. And this is why I'm doing things like, let's go to the North Pole to run a marathon and dodge polar bears. I mean, like, who the fuck does that? <laughs> because, because at the end of the day, you never want to look back and said, I could have done that. You know, I could have I, I, I put the vineyard in Bhutan. I could have just made a premium rum. I could have done a lot of things. Not, yes. It's not going to hold me back, right? Correct. That's... And um, look, if people want to follow you, you have the drinking and knowing things wine blog, you're doing your books, you've got your Instagram account, they can they can sign up on for the email newsletter. Are there other ways that people get to connect with you? Yeah, so I think, you know, drinking and knowing things.com is an easy way if you want to sign up for the newsletter. Um, at Bhutan Wine or ButanWine.com. That's the website and the Instagram handle for that if they want to kind of see what's going on with what we're doing there. SoCalRum.com or at SoCalRum uh, is the website and the, uh, and the Instagram accordingly. Uh, people can find me on LinkedIn at Michael Jurgens. Um, I'm, I'm happy. I, I, I respond. I would say if someone sends me a message, they'll generally get a response from me. I, I like to be connected to, to the people that are interested in what I'm doing. Cause I get it's esoterically geeky shit, but if you're interested enough to lean in with me, cool. Come on in, man. The water's fine. So. I am, I'm Michael. I'm so grateful for your time today. I, I, I just, there are things now that I want to try and learn and I can't wait to get into your blog and see all the things that are going on with you and learn more. And, you know, for me, you touch on something and I've seen, I've said this before, you know, no matter what you're drinking, if you learn more about the producer, whether it's the distillery, the winery, the cidery, the meadery, if you could connect with the people that are making that, the history behind it, it makes what's in the bottle, it makes what's going in your glass even more enjoyable. And I look at that from that world. And talking to somebody like you imparts that excitement, that information that if I learn more, yeah, it's not just a bottle on a shelf. It, it's not just you know, a winery that you make a right and turn down a long road and you sit out and it's about, Hey, how do I elevate my experience of life? And that's what, that's what you've imparted for me today. So I want to thank you for that. Cool. Well, Rich has been a delight. I appreciate you. Let me tell stories and have fun with you today. I know we have a limited amount of time, but we could do this for another eight hours. So that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll come back on any time. Thanks, Michael. Cheers.